0: 13. As I said a moment ago, this is our final chapter in the epistle of Hebrews. We expect a few more weeks here. If you recall, the overarching theme of this book is the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's better than Moses. He's better than angels. He's better than anything else that has ever come before. His priesthood is better than the Old Testament priesthood. His new covenant is better than the old covenant. His sacrifice is better than the sacrifices of the old covenant. His intercession is better. And it's written to Jewish believers who were under pressure. They were, in some cases, persecuted. They were oppressed. Uh, They were being lured by others in their culture to come back to the fold of Judaism. And as a result, they were enduring hardship and persecution, in some cases, temptation. Maybe that might be the way to go. And the the call over and over again, at least five times, we find this warnings to persevere to the very end and do not abandon what God has begun in you. So, we come down to chapter 13, and it just appears to be these random rapid-fire instructions, but in reality, they're not unrelated. They, they actually are immensely important, and they have immense full, immensely, immense practical importance. You see, one of Satan's dev- favorite devices in the body, you've heard of divide and conquer, but, but it's kind of an ancillary to that. It's isolate and eliminate. And if Satan can get you off by yourself feeling like you're all alone and nobody cares, you are so vulnerable. You're vulnerable to believe his lies, to give in to his temptations, to say, what is the use? Nobody cares anyway. And with all these doubts, all these negative thoughts in your mind, you become easy prey to the enemy. And one of his most frequent lies for people struggling, Christians struggling in, within the body is, these people don't really care about you. They don't love you. So, why even try? What's the use? And a hopelessness can flood over your soul. In Hebrews chapter 3, we looked at this some time ago. Uh, the apostle writes, or the, the, the writer here of Hebrews writes, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called a day, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That word exhort is a very flexible ministry term. It's my favorite ministry term, parakaleo. It means one called alongside. And it can mean exhort, but it can also mean encourage. And I think in this context, it would be better to say encourage one another every day. You don't necessarily need exhortation every day, but you do need encouragement every day. And as we encourage one another every day, that protects us from being hardened by the deceitfulness of our enemy. And the series of admonitions we have this morning are encouragements to that very thing. And there are ways we can encourage one another to persevere and to provide spiritual protection. I have five points here. Very easy. Number one, love one another. Number two, show hospitality to strangers. Number three, have compassion for the needy. Number four, preserve marital purity. And then number five, be on guard against greed. And we'll unpack those one at a time. First of all, we're called to love one another. Verse one, let brotherly love continue. Now, I've said before, there are numerous commands in the New Testament of our responsibilities toward one another. I call them the one another commands. And the most frequent is love one another, at least 10 times, maybe closer to 15. We're instructed in the New Testament to love one another. In John chapter 13, our Lord says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And the first thought is, well, that doesn't sound new. But then he shows us why. He says, just as I have loved you. Like, oh, wait a minute. You just raised the bar, didn't you? Not just love one another as you love yourself. Love one another as I have loved you. But then he says this very important. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. The most powerful evidence of the reality of Christ at work in our lives is the way we love one another. Now, the particular word that is used here in Hebrews 13, verse 1, is not the common word for Christian love, agape. That is what's in John 13. It is what's in 1 Corinthians 13, what we call the love chapter. But this is a different word. It's the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It actually just means love for the brothers, all right? It could also be translated brotherly affection. It speaks to a family family. Connection. We are members of the same family. We have this blood is thicker than water kind of bond going on. The reality of Christ in us calls us to a particular mutual affection. In Romans chapter 12, verse 10, Paul says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Agape with Philadelphia. Literally. Outdo one another in showing honor. Or in 1 Corinthians 4.9, 4, 9, Now concerning brotherly love... You have no need of anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Then again, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The continuing instruction in Scripture is that we love each other and that we do so with a mutual brotherly or sisterly affection. And there's a straightforward command. Let brotherly love continue. That's an indication that it's already present. Just don't let it go out. You're already practicing this. Now now continue what you're doing. Remember I mentioned at the beginning, Satan has this strategy. Get you off by yourself. Isolate. Eliminate. You stop showing love to others and you stop sensing that they love you And pretty soon you feel alone and isolated and you become very spiritually vulnerable. And one of the best ways to ensure against that happening is we love one another. And when he says love one another as something that's already going on, it's basically don't let it be extinguished. Don't let that flame of love go out. Don't allow your brother or sister to, uh, to, to... or, or don't let them wander off alone. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 and 8. And again, here it's the agape, but it's, it's, it, it translates over. Love bears all things. It believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And a love for each other should never end. In his commentary, Richard Brooks lays down a, a very challenging statement here. It's a little bit longer, but I want to read it because it's challenging to, to my heart. and I think it will be to yours. Mutual love among Christians to which all believers are here exhorted will be the evidence of a sincere desire for their good and spiritual happiness. This mutual love is a sincere desire for their good and spiritual happiness. And it will be pursued with a willingness to overlook their failures and infirmities. To love them in an impartial way, not having favorites, even if we may be drawn to some fellow believers more than to others. But also a readiness to go on loving them, whatever their circumstances are, however much they disappoint us. And I've said before, we are semi-sanctified and we will disappoint one another. It's going to happen. It has happened. It'll happen again. And this command to go on with loving one another, this mutual affection, must not be hijacked or waylaid or extinguished by those temporal disappointments. Love never ends. Now, you've probably heard people say, well, yeah, I know. The Bible says I'm supposed to love my brother, but it doesn't mean I have to like him. Well, the reality is that word Philadelphia includes liking, not just loving in a selfless way, but actually, I like you too. And let's be honest, some of us are harder to like than others. I understand that. But that doesn't get us off the hook. We're to like, love, have brotherly affection for one another. So that's the first practical way that we can encourage one another and protect each other spiritually. The second is to show hospitality to strangers. Now, this word hospitality is a, comp- a compound word, literally love for strangers or affection for strangers. Uh, it doesn't always mean hospitality to strangers, by the way. In Romans chapter 12, verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality, outdo one another, uh, excuse me, twelve thirteen. show hospitality. That's talking to one another, contributing to the needs of the saints, the ones that you see. In 1 Peter 4, 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And so there it's not strangers, it's people you know. But I think in this particular context, the, the, the translators here are, 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 are correct because the, the context talks about entertaining angels unaware. Those are people you don't know. You didn't realize there were an angel that came. Now, that may uh, seem kind of daunting, kind of, kind of, you know, show hospitality to strangers. Well, you know, uh, first of all, let's consider the original culture. That culture, uh, they didn't have hotels like we have hotels. There were inns or taverns, but a lot of times they weren't real safe. They were not real respectable uh, enterprises. And so somebody traveling would need a place that was safe and comfortable and welcoming. And when believers would travel from one city to another, oftentimes they would come with a letter from their church and a commendation, and the local church would, someone in the local church would, Allow them to stay in their home. If you remember when Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy first went into Macedonia, they came to Philadelphia, and they met a woman named Lydia, and they spoke to her the word of God, and the Lord opened her heart, and she believed, and she said, if you consider me a believer, come stay in my home. And it was kind of customary, it was common for a God-fearing person to say, "Uh, I appreciate you, come stay here. You, You don't need to sleep under this tree, all right? Uh, in John or Third John chapter or verses five and six, uh, it's only one chapter in Third John, but John commends them. He says, Brothers, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers. There were there were itinerant preachers who came to the community, the church where John is addressing, and he says, It's a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts to these strangers, these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. They're on a journey. They came to you, and you showed them love. You showed them hospitality. And it will, it will you know, honor the Lord, and, and, and it will speak well of you to send them on the journey in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's hospitality to strangers. And the reason he says that we're to do that is because some have entertained angels unawares. Kids, if you don't, well, what does unawares mean? It means without knowing it. They entertained angels and didn't even realize that was an angel. And if you read, uh, on two different occasions, the angel of the Lord and two other angels appeared to Abraham and to Sarah. And by the way, when it says angel of Yahweh, Lord in all caps, in the Old Testament, I believe that's a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus himself. Uh, Many times it says an angel, but when it says an angel of the Lord, I believe that's Jesus. And I think there are good reasons for believing that. Uh, Lot was visited by two angels. And they said, "I oh, we'll just sleep in the city square. He's like, that's not safe. Come stay in my home. I don't know that he knew there were angels, but he entertained angels unawares. Gideon was approached hiding in a wine press by an angel. Don't think he understood at the first that dealing with an angel here. Samson's parents longing to have a child and an angel appears to them and tells them that they will. And the point here is, I don't know that it's likely that an angel is going to come visit with us today, but the point is you never know what blessing the Lord might bring into your life if you open up your home and show hospitality, particularly to one of his people. Now, if you're familiar with the story, Les Rob, I see a couple smiles. You remember the, the main character has gotten out of prison after 20 years he's a convict, and he's totally rejected and shunned by everyone, and nobody trusts him. And so, he's embittered, he's angry, and this nice, kind bishop says, come, come into my home. We'll feed you. Here, sleep in this bed. And shows him wonderful hospitality, and he repays the hospitality by stealing all the guy's silver. And you can look at that and go, yeah, that's what happens when you show hospitality to strangers, forget about it, Right? Well, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. It truly doesn't. Now, Rosaria Butterfield, very well-known author, wrote a book called Radical Hospitality. And if you read that book, it's like, I can't believe they do this. (laughs) It's very countercultural, even for the church culture, the ways that they open their home and show hospitality. But she was converted from a life of lesbianism by having dinner with a pastor and his family almost every week for about a year just talking about stuff and talking about life and talking about scripture and talking about whatever. And it was the love shown to her week in and week out that softened her heart and said, this is real community. And so it marked her and, and, and she and her husband, who's also a pastor, has said, this is what we want to do. Uh, it, I don't know that every Christian is called to radical hospitality, but I do know that every Christian is called to real hospitality. So what might that look like in our present day? Well, first of all, I would encourage you, we ought to be cultivating the practice of hospitality to one another. Again, Peter said, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Uh, that actually used to be kind of pushed from our pulpit frequently, and, and there was this, you know, we want to be having people in our homes and showing hospitality. And it was, it was uh, emphasized greatly. And it's interesting, some of, the, some of you who've been here a long time, you remember that, and that has become so much a part of the fabric of your life and the rhythm of your, of your week that it's, it's assumed. Others of you still show hospitality very faithfully, even though it hasn't been thundered as much here. But, but you recognize that's what God's Word calls us to. It communicates. welcome. Come into my home. Not just let me entertain you, but come see who we are. See how we live. Let us share our lives together with you. Uh, The only only Spanish phrase that I know is mi casa es su casa, which means my house is your house. That's a Spanish way of saying, make yourself at home. Make yourself comfortable. Make yourself at home doesn't mean, and the mop's over there in the corner. Would you clean up? No. That's not what we're talking about. But let us serve you and let us bless you. In our home. Now, that could look like a meal. It could look like coffee, dessert. It could look like any number of ways just to sit down and have relaxed, comfortable, welcoming fellowship. It doesn't have to be anything fancy or elaborate. In fact, the more fancy and elaborate it is, in some cases it makes people feel uncomfortable rather than really comfortable. And so, come see who we are. See how we live. And let's live it together. And the point here is mutual encouragement. And let me say to you families, that's particularly important for singles who go home week after week to an empty apartment, maybe. You know, some of them have roommates, some of them have, go out with friends, but uh, how important for us to include our singles. And for families who don't have any relatives in town, when Christmas or Thanksgiving or some other holiday comes around, do they have someone to celebrate that with? Or do they, can, can they be in your home? And how sweet that, that, that has, I've seen that so many, many times over the years. So, but how can we do what he says here, showing hospitality to strangers? Well, let's think first of all about visitors who come to Grace Baptist Church. I, I hear over and over again visitors say, this is the friendliest church I've ever been to. And I praise the Lord for that. I, I, I'm thankful that so many of you are like heat-seeking missiles to, to visitors. <laughs> and there are a few of you, it's like I have to stand in line behind you to greet visitors because you beat them to me, beat me to them, and I, I love that. I, I'm so thankful for that heart, and some of you even plan to have people over, and you might invite one family, and you leave room for another family that might be visiting that you've never even met yet, and you meet at church, and you invite them over, or they visit once or twice, and, you, and you, you contact them and say, hey, come into my home. A number of years ago, I was at a, uh, uh, an RBNet General Assembly, and I met with a number of men who had come to our church as interns for a period of time. There were about six or seven of them that had been uh, in our church over various years. And I asked them, there was one particular family, who, and you can probably guess who they are, who's particularly gifted in, in, in hospitality. I said, how many of you were at their house within the first two weeks of being at the church? And almost, I think all but one or two said, yeah, we were. And one of them married their daughter. But anyway, uh, not that weak, by the way. But anyhow, that's a wonderful way to show hospitality to strangers, welcoming them in, not just to the building, not just to the assembly, but even to our homes and into our lives. Galatians 6.10 says, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith. And again, I, I want to commend you because our, our church has a, a, a good record here. And when we had the General Assembly back in September, uh, the hospitality extended to visiting pastors and their families and elders and their families and others from churches around the country and even around the world, it was very encouraging. I just, I just found, myself, I found myself standing in the middle of the auditorium one night just almost weeping with joy at the fellowship I saw happening with one another, but with you guys. And numerous people told me, thank you so much for the hospitality that is extended by your congregation. But back to that angels unawares things, there are surprising things that can happen when you show hospitality to somebody you don't know. And I've seen over and over again deep bonds of friendship forged with someone because they came and stayed in your home. And in fact, Drew Martin's pastor, Murray Brett, and his wife Paula came for the General Assembly. They stayed with one of our in one of our host homes. Forced a, a, a deep friendship with that dear host, and that's where they stayed this past weekend when they came back for Drew's wedding because that friendship has been formed. Not an angel, but a delightful relationship and fellowship. And the amazing thing is when you find that God has blessed your hospitality in that way, it's mutually beneficial. It's not a sacrifice. It's like you feel enriched that God would give you such a great privilege. Well, the third thing he tells us is to have compassion on those who are needy. Verse 3, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. So, two examples of compassion. One, remembering those in prison. Number two, having empathy for those who are mistreated. Let's talk first about remembering those in prison. Some of you know Brett and Sandra Braidman, who came to us from California just a year or so ago, two years ago, I guess. Uh, but Brett and, and, and Sandra have been doing prison ministry for decades. So the first thing they did before they joined the church is they got, uh, they were coming to our church, but before they went through that process, they got approved to be in the local jail, and they've been doing Bible studies here ever since. And some of you have come alongside and helped them. And there are others. If you're interested in in, in jail ministry, prison ministry, Brett and Sandra are right here, and they'd be glad to introduce you to that wonderful, wonderful opportunity that we have right here in our own community. But in the context of Hebrews 13, it's not likely that he's talking about criminals that we don't know. Most likely, he's talking about believers that we do know who've been in prison for their faith. If you go back to chapter 10... He is commending them in their former days and saying, no, don't, don't, don't forget with that, don't, don't lose that. He says, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. That's that mistreatment in the second part of this verse. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And so, there were believers in this church that he's writing to who had been in prison for their faith, and they showed compassion to those who were in prison. They were persecuted believers, and that's almost certainly the case of what he's addressing specifically here in chapter 13. Now, it's also important to understand that in the first century, in the Roman prisons, typically, the prison guards did not feed the prisoners. They were relying on friends and family to come and bring them the basic necessities of life or they would starve. And so there was an ongoing need for people to go and visit those in prison, much like a need to provide for shut-ins who don't have the necessities that they need. Paul commends the saints who ministered to him when he was in prison. In fact, in the, the, the epistle to the Philippians, it's really just a big thank you note. There's a lot of other stuff too. But he writes the occasion, is thank you for sending this dear brother Onesimus to me, uh, uh, or excuse me, Epaphroditus to me, who has uh, brought this gift from you as a church to meet my need while I'm here in prison. He wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy verse, chapter 1 verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of our testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in the suffering of the gospel by the power of God don't be ashamed of me because I'm in prison like oh man he's a jailbird I don't you know no not at all in fact a few verses later he says may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anesiphorus for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains Anesiphorus was ministering to Paul while he was in prison and that's the example that we're to be aware of and to follow you and I we're prone to play it safe right we don't want to step outside of our comfort zones and go places that are uncomfortable, but that's actually where the action is. That's where our faith is most prominently on display. Now, in our country, we have the guarantee of freedom of religion, so it's a very rare thing that a believer would be locked up simply because he's a Christian. There's usually something else going on. But that's not the case in other parts of the world. Persecution is very common in many, many parts of the world, many, many countries. In America, many times a pastor's credentials are sort of checking out his credentials and say, well, where'd you go to seminary? And that tells you something about this pastor. I visited China a number of years ago, and over there, they didn't ask him where you go to seminary. They said, how many times have you been in prison and for how long? See, their credential was quite different, wasn't it? The instruction of verse three is remember those in prison, meaning call them to mind, Bring them to your memory. Think, uh, remind yourself of their plight as if you were in the same condition. Don't forget them, and don't let it be out of sight, out of mind. So we do so with empathy, as if you were there with them. You identify with that suffering because we are members of one another. It means we feel the weight of that affliction. We we <clears throat> seek to understand the impact it's having on their family, as their husband's been taken away, and who knows when he'll return. Now, I'm not saying that we can all go on prison visitation tours around the world to persecuted believers. That ain't ain't gonna work. How do we remember them? Well, we pray for them first and foremost. There are other ways too, but I I would encourage you to check out Voice of the Martyrs. It's a very helpful tool to help us learn how to remember those who are persecuted for their faith. But if you'll notice, if you come to our prayer meeting, and if you don't come, we we send out the prayer list to, to all of our members and others who attend. There is a section in every prayer list about praying for the persecuted believers around the world in particular people groups, particular locations. That's one of the ways we can remember those who are in prison. Make a habit, a practice of informing ourselves and interceding for the sake of the saints. Fourth thing he calls us to is to preserve marital purity. Look at verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterers. There's a twofold command going on here. First of all, marriage is to be held in honor among all. That's particularly relevant for us today, right? Because we celebrated the wedding of Alicia and Drew just yesterday. Many of you were here, and many others were here as well. And we celebrated, and we rejoiced. But our focus should not simply be on the wedding. It should be on the marriage and the life together, forged between a man and a woman. Let marriage be held up in honor because it is a tremendous blessing. It is the most blessed, joy-inspiring, but also the most challenging human relationship God has given us. Marriage is a creation ordinance. God established it from the very beginning. And it is fundamental and foundational for any society. It's the, the most basic, essential human institution. And all manners of studies have been done to show that breakdown of the family is catastrophic for the culture at large it's catastrophic for the children who grow up in single parent families or broken homes and you can go look at the statistics and it really is sad a stable loving home is a vital source of stability and security for a child people talk today about privilege as if you feel guilty about having some kind of privilege one of the greatest privileges parents can give to their children is to love each other. Stay together, not just endure each other, but love each other and bring those children up in a home where they know mom and dad really love each other. That is an enormous privilege and blessing. And it's also essential to the healthy development of each individual and really of our culture. Increasingly, marriage is viewed as optional. The number of -of out-of-wedlock births has skyrocketed, it blows my mind what I've seen happen in my lifetime. It just is unimaginable. Days gone by, it was considered shameful if a girl got pregnant out of wedlock. Today, it's celebrated, and no thought is given to it. And I don't believe in shunning people in shame, but I also don't believe in celebrating immorality. You love the child, but what of the responsibility of that mom or father bringing them into the world, bringing children to the world as a result of disobedience to the Lord? and then seeking to raise them in a context that is not going to give them the advantages God designed marriage to provide. It's backwards, and it's been destructive, and we can see it all around us. Now, one of the ways that we can hold marriage in honor is encourage other couples. Encourage them in that race that God has set out before them. And if you see them struggling in any way, reach out to them. You know, it's one thing you can say, you know, the pastor would be happy to talk to you about this, and and we would but I can't tell you how many times I've talked to families in this church who've said you know we were going through a particularly hard time and this family over here reached out to us they had us in their home they they ministered to us and and they stayed with us through a time of of, of real struggle and encouraged us and helped us get things straightened out and that's one of the wonderful ways that every single one of us can hold marriage in honor now I don't want to overlook the singles here right but our goal in our prayer is that our singles eventually will become married because we honor marriage and we think it's important. We wanna encourage godly and healthy marriages. Another way to hold marriage in honor is to prepare for it well. And so, I, I mean, my wife and I met a young woman a couple of weeks ago. We'd seen her once before, she was at a doctor's office. And The second time we saw her, I was like, is that ring on your finger new? And she said, yeah it is, I just got engaged. And being the pastor that I am, I said, are you pursuing premarital counseling? And she said, yes, we are. But I just think that's, that's so very important to make adequate preparation for the most challenging and important relationship you will ever enter into. And also, the one that has the most potential for greatest joy, if you do it well, right? So make, take advantage of the opportunities, the resources that are there. And there's books, there's podcasts, there's all kinds of conferences, all kinds of ways. We teach Sunday schools, uh, uh, Sunday school uh, courses from time to time on marriage. Take advantage of those to enrich and hold our marriages in honor. Now, sadly, we live in a day where people are trying to redefine marriage. In the original design, man shall leave his father and mother cleave to his wife. The two become one flesh. It's a man and a woman. And our culture is trying to redefine it and say it can be a man and a man. It can be a woman and a woman. It can be three people. It can be, and once you open that door, it can be any number of craziness. And it's become a moral free-for-all, an immoral free-for-all. And people are basically saying marriage is whatever you want it to be. No, it's not. It is not. In just a few weeks after we complete the study on Hebrews, I'm going to be doing a series, Lord willing, on contemporary cultural issues, addressing how the authority of Scripture addresses the confusion in our culture, the wokeness and the LGBTQ craziness and all, you know, the, the, the rampant rejection of biblical mores. And of, you know, this idea that my truth is truth. No, it's not. <laughs> God's truth is truth. Uh, so we're going to be looking at that in a few weeks. But there are those who also treat marriage as disposable. If the flame goes out, we'll just, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll hit, the, hit, the, hit the door and, and, and go find somebody else. We have this overly romanticized view of marriage that actually undercuts It's integrity. The unchanging word of God says one man, one woman for life. Better or worse, rich or poor is what our vows say. There are studies that have shown that the divorce rate among professed believers is not radically different from that of people who have no profession of Christian faith. My personal opinion is a lot of those professed believers are not believers. And I think the divorce rate among sincere Christians is lower, but it's still there. And it's still heartbreaking. The scriptures do give. Uh, biblical uh, guidelines for when a marriage could be dissolved because of adultery or, or abandonment. And that's a complicated issue we're not going to get into. But I recommend a book by Jim Neuheiser, professor of, of biblical counseling at, at RTS in Charlotte. He's also a member of our Reformed Baptist Network. He wrote a book called Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage. And I would recommend that if you want to study that out more thoroughly. But it's a holy and sacred covenant it's a picture to the world of the love relationship between the Lord Jesus and his bride the church so hear me every marriage makes a statement about Jesus love for the church every marriage does and if it's a marriage where you're not faithful where you're negligent where you're making a dishonest false statement but you're still making a statement this is what Jesus love for the church is supposed to look like and if we're not obeying the Lord we're making a false statement bearing false witness as it were but if our marriages are God honoring and glorifying and happy and healthy, we're making a very different and very important statement about Christ and His church. The second thing He says here is let the marriage bed be undefiled. And you know what defiles a marriage bed? It's immorality, sexual impurity. It's very clear. It says God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Sexually immoral is that very broad term that embraces every aspect, every expression of sexual impurity, of premarital sex or fornication, of, of, of homosexuality and all of those sorts of things, and even pornography, which is destructive to a healthy marriage. It's antithetical to honoring marriage. But the other word adulterous specifically refers to violating that marriage covenant, s- sexual infidelity. And the warning here, God will judge the sexually immoral, and the adulterous. Now, our love for Christ and our love for our spouse ought to keep us in the rails and keep us from going in those directions. But if they do not, for some reason, your love is flagging, go back to this warning. God's going to judge those who indulge in such behaviors. And that should cause us to pause and say, I don't want to go there. So remember, we read in Hebrews 2, 1229, our God's a consuming fire. I don't want to get burned by God's dealing with me, whether it's corrective discipline or worse. And so the best thing is to do what he says. But the context of the entire passage, how is this feeding into encouraging one another? Well, it protects meaningful fellowship. The most basic fundamental relationship is marriage. Marriage. And these become a source of protection for one another within our homes, but then also a a, a base of operations for ministry to others in the church through hospitality and through other forms of encouragement. I've dealt with a number of young couples recently who have said, you know, I'm uh, in, in engagement or preparation for marriage, they said, one of the reasons I want to marry this person is because I know I'm better with them than I am by myself. The two of us are better off, or not just better off, but we're better. We're more fruitful. There's more we can do for the Lord together than we could do individually. And I think that's absolutely true. Well, the final thing he tells us to do here is to cultivate contentment. Look at verses 5 and 6. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So first of all, we have this warning against a covetous heart, against greed. Keep your life free from the love of money. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul warns about this very thing. He says, those who desire to be rich, those who love money, fall into a temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is though through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Again, notice carefully, the Bible doesn't say money is the root of all kinds of evil. The problem is the love of money. That single-minded pursuit of, of money that leads people to neglect family, neglect church, neglect Christ, neglect serving other people. It's all about getting more. Getting more. Can what you get and hide the can, as I've heard it said. Some are constantly daydreaming about having more money. I can remember working secular jobs and and, and at, the, at the lunch table, these people are talking about, well, if you won the lottery, what would you do with that money? And if I won the lottery, and it's like, there's just, that became a, a very common source of conversation, producing this heart that says, I want, I want, I want. They're dreaming about what they don't have, rather than expressing gratitude and contentment for what they do have. Now, I want to say here, the ability to earn money can be a component of the spiritual gift of generosity. And I've seen people with a particular gift to earn money who had generous hearts, and they actually saw that as their spiritual gift to give and share with others that which God had enabled them to earn. But you can't give away what you don't earn. And so there's that. But it's not a love of money, it's a love of giving money, of sharing. That's so powerful. The antidote to this covetous heart, to this love of money is contentment. And let's be honest here. How many of us have said at some point, I would be completely content if I just had a little bit more? Mm. <laughs> right? Okay. A little bit more than what? Well, than what I have now. But then when you get that, you're going to still want a little bit more, right? That is a delusional reasoning that leads to a discontented heart. And one of the problems that we have is we see other people who have nice stuff. We live in a culture that glorifies lavish living nice cars, nice houses, fine clothes, all the accoutrements of wealth. The Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. And it's trumpeted and it's, it's, it's presented for us. It's celebrated. And you may not buy into that lifestyle, but very easily you can be drawn to want more than you can afford. I want a new iPhone every time the next generation comes out. I knew a guy who actually took off work the first day the iPhone came out, every time, so he could have it the very first day. And I'm like, why? Why? What's that about? And parents, your kids are on enormous pressure to have the latest, greatest devices. I want, I want, I need. Everybody else at school has one. I don't. And it puts enormous pressure on them. Everybody else has a nice car driving to school. Why don't I get one? And that, that desire for more and more, and quite frankly, tugging at our hearts to want to please our kids rather than want to teach them to be content with what God has given to their family. There's a surefire axiom that says, expenses always rise to exceed income. Let me say it again. Expenses always rise to exceed income. In other words, you get a raise and you think, well, that means I can go out and buy more things. So you're always a little bit behind. You're always one day short of living paycheck to paycheck. And it's a sure-fire recipe for financial trouble. Contentment. Be content with what you have. It begins with a thankful heart. Grateful for what God has given to you rather than grumbling for what he has not given you. And gratitude, we talked about this past Wednesday night, gratitude begins with humility. God has given me far more than I deserve. The common sentiment in our day is one of entitlement. I deserve more. I deserve this. I deserve that. Rather than saying, I know my heart. I deserve to go to hell. And anything short of hell is grace. That was a quote from Spurgeon, by the way. But an entitled heart, hear me, an entitled heart is a discontented heart, always. In Philippian, Philippians, I mentioned earlier, Paul was in prison. He's writing this thank you note for the gift that they had sent. And he, he doesn't address it until chapter 4. But he says this to the Philippian church that had sent him financial aid through Epaphroditus. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. First, that might sound like, what took you so long? That's not what he meant. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. I know, or excuse me, in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him Who strengthens me? The three things I want you to notice from this text. First of all, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, is not about setting a goal and achieving it. It's not about your team winning. It's not about doing something superhuman because God will give you the strength. It's about doing what God calls you to do. And one of those fundamental things in that particular context is being content. And in Paul's case, he was in prison. I've learned how to be content having a lot. Some of the most discontented people in the world are people who have a lot, but it's not quite enough yet. We have a joke in our family. We drive by these beautiful, gorgeous houses and say, yeah, but you know they're not happy. They might be. They might love the Lord and He's blessed them. I don't know. But I've seen people who are wealthy with tremendous assets, and they're complaining about how unfair life has been and that they don't have more. So there are people, uh, having more is not gonna make you content. And of course, having very little tempts you to discontentment as well. Second thing I want you to see from this verse is that contentment's a secret. Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content. It's not widely known. It's not something that that, that everybody knows. In fact, most people think, who wants that? I want more. But Paul says, contentment is a powerful thing. But thirdly, he said I had to learn that secret. It did not come naturally to me or to anyone else. Contentment is not natural to our human nature. Discontentment is. And so we're told to be content with what God has given us. Great Puritan paperback by Jeremiah Burroughs, the rare jewel of Christian contentment. He tells us that contentment comes from Christ. He tells us it's rare in the title. It's not something that's commonly known, even among believers. And it's a jewel. It's incredibly precious. A discontented heart is like flypaper to temptation. Everything sticks. Your heart is just looking for stuff, looking for more, and you are primed for all manner. In fact, we read that. You, if you, by, by searching after riches, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, many have basically shipwrecked their, their faith. They've, they've cast themselves into many pangs. But a contented heart is like Teflon. Nothing sticks. You've seen these commercials for, you know, for the fry pan and nothing sticks to it. And they fry an egg and they turn it and it slides right up. A contented heart, temptation has no hooks to grab hold of. And so a contented heart is a pure heart. Satan introduced discontentment into Eve's heart in order to get her to sin against God. In First Timothy 6, the world says, get more, get more. In First Timothy 6, Paul says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Great gain. And the foundation in this text, in Hebrews 13, for contentment is, the Lord is with me. Look again at verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If God is with me and God is my Father and he knows what I need before I even ask and he's committed to provide for me, then I can be content with his timing, with his wisdom, and with his provision. In Matthew 6, Jesus tells us, don't be like the unbelievers who are just obsessed with all the stuff they think they need. Your Father knows what you need before you even ask, so seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. God is a generous God, a faithful God. He gives us all things richly to enjoy, Paul writes. There's a dynamic in verse 6 I want you to see. We can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? There's a conf- contrast here between confidence and fear. If the Lord is with me, I can live with confidence. I don't have to live in fear. But if I live in the f- grip of fear, I am going to be inclined to look for security wherever I can find it. And one of the most obvious places, at least in this culture, is money, right? I can look to money for my security. That's different from the greed that says I need more and more and more. That's fear and insecurity that says money is my solution. But you know what the Bible says about don't put your trust in riches, right? Put your trust in the Lord. He will never fail you. I am with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Lord is with me. What can man do to me? I can say that with confidence. He gives me security. He gives me stability. And hear me, brothers and sisters, if you believe that, you have strong basis to be content. So we've looked at five direct instructions. Brotherly love for one another. Showing hospitality. Caring for the needy, holding marriage honor, being content with what God has given you. At first glance, you might think they're unrelated, but as I said earlier on, there's this thread of love for Christ, of trusting in Christ. He's better than anything else the world has to offer. And it's so easy for us to focus on what I want, what I think I need, what I believe are my rights. We can end up neglecting any one or all of these very instructions. And when our love for Christ falters, then we don't have any heart to love each other. We don't have any heart to show hospitality or care for those who are needy. We become selfish in our own pursuits and interests. And that's oftentimes the first step toward broken marriages and moral failure. Because we're looking for quick and easy pleasure. And when that love falter and fails, it is a sure sign that we are not finding contentment in Christ. We're looking for fulfillment somewhere else. Christian, hear me. The law tells us this is what you must do. It says don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't covet. Don't have any other gods before me. The law says what we must do, but it doesn't enable us to do. It's the love of Christ revealed to us in the gospel, the sweetness of our Savior who is for us, who will never leave us, never forsake us. That reality, he will hold me fast for my Savior, loves me so, that keeps our heart and that inspires us, motivates us, enables us, energizes us to do these very things that he calls us to do. Brother, sister in Christ, if you live every day with this daily confidence that the Lord is with you, That he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He is your helper. Do you believe that? Do you actively nurture that confidence in your own heart, in your own mind? If you believe in his promises, if you trust in him rather than the uncertainty of riches and treasures laid up on this earth, if you really trust him, it makes all the difference in the world. We can live with peace. We can live with joy. We can live with stability and security. And we have something to give to others But if we're a sponge that's never satisfied, it's never enough. We got nothing to give. We know nothing of the love of Christ for us. The spirit of this age is gonna lead you in all kinds of directions where you'll wander around in hopeless misery. May God give us the grace to trust him. Truly believe him. By faith, run with endurance the race he's marked out for us. To put in practice These practical applications of his love, his care for us, and our love and care for one another.